Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Before we get started today, I want to say a thank you to the folks at Latito at Joe Bar in Hazel Park. We were there last night for a Smart Politics happy hour. Lots of folks came out to talk about issues that they're concerned about the things that are on their minds. Tell us about what we should be asking political and business leaders when we go up to Mackinac Island for the Mackinac Policy Conference later this year. Uh, we had a really great conversation, uh, and the folks at Latito at Joe Bar, of course, were excellent, excellent hosts. So uh, thanks to everyone for making that a really great event. All right, so we've talked a lot on this show about the way we design the places we live, our cities, our towns, and our neighborhoods. And we've talked about the ways that we could make those places more sustainable, more equitable, and maybe a little more attractive. But something we haven't talked as much about is the impact of that built environment on our bodies and on our minds. There's data that suggests suburban sprawl has negative effects on our physical health, for instance. It's less clear, though, what it means for our mental health. But when WDET started talking to people in Canton Township for our series, Crossing the Lines, we heard over and over again about isolation and depression, especially among teens. So why are so many of us so isolated in our communities? And what can we do about it? That's, what we want, that's where we want to begin the conversation here today on Detroit Today with this idea of the effects of the built environment on our mental health. And of course, we want to hear from you. Talk about the ways that physical spaces around you affect the way you feel. Talk about your neighborhood. Talk about the city that you live in. Does it really shape the way you feel about your life and about yourself? And if you're somebody who struggles with mental health issues that you think are related to where you live and the way that place is configured, we especially want to hear from you. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. And joining us to kick off this subject is Michael Segrist. He is the Clinton Township clerk, someone who grew up in Canton and experienced isolation as a teen. Uh, Michael Segrist, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yes. Um, that's right. You're not the Clinton Township clerk. You're the Canton Township clerk. That's right. <laughs> I got that a little wrong there. Um, all right. So let's talk about you growing up in Canton and how you got into some bad patterns as a teenager. Yeah. So um, well, thank you very much for having me today, Stephen. Mm -hmm. This is a, a fantastic conversation. I think it's one that we need need to have. I um you know, I grew up in the in the Plymouth Canton community for the most part. They share a school district. It's actually the fourth largest school district in the state of Michigan mm -hmm. um, at last count. But um, so, in in a sense, growing up in in, in Plymouth Township is, is is equivalent to growing up in Canton as well. Um, so I've, I've spent a lot of my time in both in both communities. I, um, you know, but but very interesting interesting communities and an interesting uh, you know childhood for the most part. I. Um, you know, and I'm and I'm always careful when I talk about um, you know my my past in general because uh, being a recovering 
person, a person who uh, is recovering from substance abuse disorder and alcoholism, I, I want to make sure I talk about it from a, a framework of personal responsibility, right, where there's a, some accountability for the, the actions that, I, that, I, that, I've, that I've done, but at the same point in time, uh, talk about the overall implications of it as well. Um, so I wanted to predicate that before I got started. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but yes, I think uh, I, um, you know, both my parents... Uh, worked right, and I think most people um, today have uh, grew up in dual income households, and and um, right around the age of about uh, thirteen and fourteen in eighth grade, I um, had moved schools. Uh, we had moved as a family, so I was in a new school system. Um, and with both my parents working, I think um, the time when school got out to the time when my parents would be getting home was a substantial amount of unsupervised time, and so. Um, you know, when I look back that early adolescence, I don't look back fondly. I think there's a lot of inner turmoil in general, and I think that's, that's common. So, um, I began experimentation looking for some sort of identity. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people who grow up later to have, um, substance abuse disorder or alcoholism later in life, it starts in, in early adolescence as well, um, and so when you have a substantial amount of unsupervised time and you begin the exploration at a time when my, my brain was really developing, you know, it's almost like hacking your brain. Mm. Um, you know, the, you're trying to, you know, dopamine makes us feel good. It makes us feel happy. And, um, you know, we can do things that, that make us feel happy, um, but it's also tied to survival. And when people begin doing that, or when I began doing that at that time, um, I was what I was really doing was altering my brain chemistry and potentially altering it for the rest of my life, and and that that has been the case. Um, it's extremely unfortunate, but um, you know, so so I think when I look at that, I look at growing up in what was at one time an exurban community and has has become definitely a suburban yeah, core community. suburb. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know, and it's getting to the point now where the suburbs have kind of gone from the Detroit River almost all the way to to Ann Arbor, so there are no <laughs> more uh, exurban communities in Southeast Michigan for the most part, but. Um, but yeah, so when I look at that, um, the experimentation, um, you know, uh, really did kind of fill that void, it, it, you know. But the, but the problem again is, you know, when I started drinking and using, as my emotional and mental health began to cease to develop, yeah, and I got stuck in that. And I wonder how much you attribute the. I guess the loneliness that you were feeling uh, to the physical space around you to the to the neighborhood that you were in maybe the school that you went to was there something about the way that community is planned and built that made this more acute for you yeah yeah you know and, and that's a, that's a hard thing for me like you know what what creates that well, you know how do you get to that turning point where it ceases to be something that's fun that you enjoy doing and it, and it becomes a compulsion and an addiction and and so you know, I, I, I'm not an expert in that regard, but um, what I can say is a lot of my drug use um, and, and alcoholism was about trying to solve a problem. I've actually heard it said, you know, I, don't, I didn't have a drinking problem, I had a drinking solution, and that was my problem. And, and I think in a lot of ways it did. You know, from the first time I had, um, you know, experienced that euphoria, I felt the way I had wanted to feel my entire life, and it filled a vacuum, and it filled a void, and... Um, and then it became it, it resulted in, in, in a sense of in a sense of false belonging, if you will, with a peer group of people who were doing the exact same thing. And um, 
what really core to that use was a certain degree of of of, of self bondage, if you will, uh, isolation, depression, um, self centered behavior. Right, not thinking about the consequences of my actions, and as a result, having some severe consequences for for what I had cho- you know, the things that I was doing, and. Um, and a lot of my recovery has been about connection, mm. has been about, um, you know, there are uh, peer groups out there, there are support groups out there, there's, uh, but recovery in general, a lot of what, what propelled me into the into community service and public service was about a way to kind of make amends to my community and try to establish uh, a sense of, um, of service um, and, 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 and to give meaning. And so I don't think it's on uncommon or unrealistic that people struggle with a, uh, a sense of connection. Now, addiction is different, right? A lot of, a lot of kids are going to go through, um, you know, that kind of a community, that kind of environment, probably 85 to 90 percent, and come through um, as pretty well-adjusted individuals, mm-hmm. um, you know. But a lot of families uh, fled urban life because they were trying to find a utopia in the suburbs. They were looking to build uh, something, they, you know, whether it's getting rid of density you know, or, or leaving density or you know, a crime, whether it is um, real or imagined, uh, you know, a failing school system. You, you know, my, my family chose Plymouth Canton because it was a top-rated school district. You know, it, it met all of those things that on paper are supposed to bring about a meaningful uh, life hmm. for people. And um, and I think the challenge with at least substance abuse in those communities is there's a lot of shame that goes along with it, there, and, and that is isolating as well. And so people don't talk about it, and, yeah. um, and it's a compounding compounding factor. So... Yeah. Um, you know, I sit on the board now of GrowthWorks, mm-hmm. which is a, um, it's a youth assistance and a mental health uh, nonprofit that has, con- you know, it's all over Wayne County. Uh, but it, when it started in Plymouth and it started as a community center for kids who were just hanging out in parks. You know, people had, had moved out to, to smaller towns and to these, these suburban areas in the 70s and the 80s. And the kids were just stuck doing nothing and you know the the police and the the city council wanted to get these kids out of Kellogg Park and so they allowed somebody to create a community center and and what they found was it wasn't just about getting them out of the parks um you know that there were some severe issues going on with these kids and um at the same point in time their families in general yeah Uh, My guest is Michael Segris. He's the Canton Township clerk. We're talking about his growing up in Canton and the experience that he had with isolation as a teen teen, uh, led him to drug and alcohol use. He eventually turned all that around and became an elected official. But we're talking about the effects of the built environment around us on mental health and especially with regard to teens. Are we building communities, especially in the suburbs, that exacerbate feelings of isolation and depression for young people? Are we building communities that accelerate feelings of, uh, of being alone, of wanting to reach out and connect? Um, and is that one of the things that we ought to be talking about when we think about these communities that we continue to build and continue to grow and continue to push out away from the core city? Um, if you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Tell us if you've ever felt isolated in your own community. Uh, do you think there are enough opportunities to interact with your neighbors and combat boredom where you live, especially for young people. And if you're a parent, what are the ways that you try to make sure your child is engaged in the community and keeping boredom and isolation away? That is an issue that I know as a parent is uh, something that comes up over and over again, that you're thinking about ways 
to keep your kids connected, not just with other kids, but uh, but with community, a sense of community. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Michael, I want to ask you about creating safe places for kids to be kids. Uh, I feel like that's one of the things that we're thinking and talking about here is is trying to, to, to give kids the space to, to, to be themselves and uh, to learn about boundaries and connection and, and things like that. And I wonder what you make of how well we do that here in Southeast Michigan. And, and, and that's a fantastic question. You know, I um, I don't have children. I want to predicate that. You know, I my wife is pregnant. We'll be having, ideally having a child <laughs> so soon, in the next couple right? of weeks. Yeah. So we're very excited about that. And that's a question I, I, I wonder, right? I'm, I'm now personally, very personally invested um, on that level, not just as, as an elected official, not just as an overall community member. Um, you know, and that's, and that's a tough question. It, it, it truly, it truly is when we look at behavior in in general, you know, how do you create a sense of of accountability and a sense of um, how do you create a um, you know yeah you know I, I yeah I don't know I think a lot of I'm gonna try to center my thoughts on on the specific question you mm-hmm. asked. I don't want to do well, what a well, lot of elected officials do and <laughs> answer the question I want to answer as opposed to well. Do you feel like you had those spaces as a kid? Yeah, so so not you know, not so not so much. I think um, you know the the neighborhood I grew up in was a neighborhood that was developed under an old model, right? Um, you know, one of the things, and, and I'll get away from my own personal story here and go more into the kind of the, maybe the nerdy aspect of, of, <laughs> of planning. And I know you have a, a guest who's coming on later that specializes and, and could blow me out of the water here. But, you know, uh, right around the 70s, right around that time period when, when the, you know, the baby boom generation had come out into the suburbs and in mass and were, and were raising a, a lot of uh, children, they were looking at how we were developing neighborhoods in particular, not just cities, but actual neighborhoods. And, they, and, and a lot of people began using planned unit developments. Is, and, you know, and these, these, these planned unit developments allowed for the creation of parks. Um, you know, uh, we have a neighborhood in Canton called Sunflower. It is um, it's gigantic. It's, it, it, to be honest, it's, a, it's, a, it's 11, um, what amount to homeowners, 11, 11 subdivisions inside of one. They have uh, a couple of clubhouses, a swimming pool, tennis courts, um, but it's not an upscale. It's not an upscale neighborhood. You know, the neighborhood came, started in the in the 70s and was being built throughout that. And it was built under the PUD, which is this notion that in order to be happy, meaningful, you have to have connections in your life. Um, you know, the, no, the idea of going to work, driving home, parking in your garage, going upstairs, spending time with just your family, um, and then start, you know, wake up and repeat, you know, rinse, repeat, right, the next day. Mm. But that, I think there was an isolation there that adults felt, you know, nobody has really, des- but nobody's designed uh, places thinking about um, adolescence and, 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 and that kind of brain. And, and, and what, what we're finding, right, or scientists are finding now is, is that the, the age of adolescence is extending longer and longer, um, you know, brain development and, and just becoming. Yeah. Into your twenties. Well into your twenties. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, 
So what does that mean? And then you add the digital component, right, where people are, are finding connection online, but what kind of, you know, how, what's, what's, the, what's the depth of that connection? You know, as we become more potentially connected electronically, it does feel like people are more isolated as well. So placemaking now in the new urbanism movement is, is, is a whole different thing altogether, trying yeah. to create holistic communities where people interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do think a lot of the, the notion of leaving the urban area was in some ways this idea that you could um, benefit from, um, it's almost like a disinvestment from kind of the responsibility it takes with, to living around other people. And connecting with other people, and and and, and that shared responsibility. Right. Um, and I think what we're what we're seeing is you can't escape those consequences. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Tell us how the built environment around you in your community affects your sense of mental health, your sense of mental well being, uh, the places that we build, the communities that we build. Uh, shape not only our physical health, but also the way we feel about the world and each other. Uh, let's go to Raymond in Ypsilanti. Raymond, welcome to Detroit today. Hey. Go ahead, Raymond. Well, I did, I've uh, been dealing with um, the issues of uh, poor people, African Americans specifically, mm-hmm. and I was president of this my little one branch of the NAACP from like 1989 until 1996, and um, it sort of deteriorated for a whole host of reasons. There are a lot of problems, especially concerning minorities. Because of the lack of jobs and jobs opportunity, and the mm-hmm. thing that really killed our area, just like Detroit and other places, is when the automobile factories left the community. Sure. And in order to support the community, you have to have money, and all that money was sucked out of the community, and as a result, the school systems uh, suffered, and the kids didn't get a great education. Um, People start making money out of a crime. I mean, we built a bigger and better jail out here in Washington County where I opposed it because I felt that if they built a bigger and better jail, they would, you know, have it uh, populated by those people who are less, uh, have the less ability to defend themselves. Certainly they do things that are necessary just to, to survive, and that's exactly what has happened. Hmm. Raymond, I, I really appreciate the call and the perspective there. I, uh, th- that's a really... A uh, great other dimension of this, which is uh, uh, how this plays out in urban contexts, uh, and and I don't think they're unrelated. I think, uh, uh, as you point out, Michael, a lot of what uh, what the suburbs are about are trying to get away from uh, that urban core and find something more idyllic. But we also have these these issues lingering in that urban core that that affect teens just as much. Yeah, you know, and 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 that's you know part of me talking talking about my story is is challenging because you know I am a a, a white man who came from a relatively affluent background and um, and so there's a whole context here. One, you can't really talk about placemaking or suburban suburbanization in Detroit without talking about race, right? Yes. And, and you guys have explored that uh, in, in depth in, in general um, through lots of programming, but. Um, you know, and I found this was interesting. You know, during the um, during the, the confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, there was mm-hmm. a lot of talk about binge drinking and things mm-hmm. along those lines. And I remember seeing a series, of, a lot of stories coming out about um, kind of uh, substance abuse in affluent communities and how 
um, you know, the rates are the same or if not higher in, in, in some of those communities than, than you see in more urban areas. But when you look at the, the criminal justice system, there's a huge disparity in how that's enforced and how, you know, the, the, the face of who are, 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 who are facing the, the, the consequences from a societal standpoint, um, you know, that's very uh, racialized and, um, and urbanized. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to this, right? I mean, if people are, if, if the overall story of Southeast Michigan is, is go north, go west mm. to find utopia, um, that disinvestment uh, hits infrastructure, it hits schools, you know, you look at transportation in general, um, you know, and, and that's a hard thing. And, 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 and you know, and, and in a lot of ways, my family tried intervening numerous times, and I don't know what my bottom would have looked like if I didn't come from my background. And I think that's important to look to look at when, when you talk about, you know, can we as a community create a place where there is redemption, where people can come back, where, um, you know, because it, we're and just talking- And where there's equal opportunity. When there's that. equal opportunity, and we have to acknowledge kind of kind of those things. That was, that was a very good point, and I think that's a voice that's yeah. important. Yeah. Okay. Michael Segrist, Canton Township Clerk, thanks very much for being here for this conversation on Detroit Today. Thank you. It's been an honor. Up next, we're going to continue this conversation about how the built environment affects our well-being. We're going to talk with some health and urban planning experts. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Dina in Ferndale, Harry in Detroit, we'll get to you as well. Also, be sure to come back on Monday when journalist and author David Marinus joins the program to talk about his book, A Good American Family, which looks at the Red Scare in the 1950s and how it hit his own family. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're talking about how the physical built environment around us affects our mental health. It's something that we don't really think all that much about. We talk a lot on this show about how the physical environment affects uh, our physical health and uh, the ways that we might think differently about how we build here in Southeast Michigan. We today want to sort of turn to a different uh, facet of that conversation and talk about our mental health. Uh, we just heard from Michael Segrist, who is the Clan- the Canton Township clerk, about the struggles he had growing up in that community. Uh, now we want to talk more about policy at a sort of bigger level here. Uh, I want to welcome Richard Jackson, who is a professor emeritus at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA and an expert on the relationship between urban design and health to the program. Richard, great to have you here. Thank you, Steve. Uh, also with us is Robin Boyle. He's a professor of urban planning at Wayne State University. Robin, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So let's start with that point I was just making. We know there's a link between suburban sprawl and negative physical health outcomes. What do we know about how it affects mental health? Richard, I'll start with you. My own background is I'm a pediatrician and was for 10 years at the Centers for Disease Control, head of environmental health in the United States, and really started out focused on toxic chemicals, air pollution, uh, cancer clusters, and things like that. And over time realized that so many of the problems we were dealing with, 
air pollution, water pollution, etc., had their origin to how we designed, built, and lived in physical environments. And we, with colleagues at CDC, pulled together a series of uh, papers and meetings, etc., on these. And you can imagine the, the water meeting and the air meeting, etc., were pretty straightforward, even the injury and physical activity ones. The mental health one, we had to turn to folks that had done studies, uh, Bill Sullivan at the University of Illinois and others, looking at how did children behave in certain environments? How did elderly uh, get along when they were increasingly isolated as access to an automobile diminished? You know, suburbia has lots of good things to it. Um, you have green space. You have uh, contact with nature. You have oftentimes a bit more security, but it also brings negative aspects to people's lives. We'll talk about it in a bit. Hmm. Uh, Robin, uh, talk about what we know about the link between the built environment and mental health. I think it's a relatively relatively new field of inquiry. Um, the area that I've looked at a little bit, um, along with uh, a student, has been a slightly different take on the same issue, um, and that is the whole question of attachment, the, the way in which people can get attached to a particular place. Now, sometimes that can be negative, but sometimes it can also be positive. And um, there's a, a, a field, um, you could even call it spatial psychology, where, where there's been studies done of how people connect when they learn about their place. What time in their, in their life do they connect to a place? Does that change? Does it go away? And, and there's a little bit of evidence, there's not a lot, but from what I've, I've, I've discovered, there can be positive elements that can be brought back to people's lives because of where they were brought up. But if that is on the negative side, if, if that is in an area that isn't welcoming and isn't um, a place you would bond to, then that can be a problem uh, further down the road. Yeah. Um, uh, what are some of the ways that uh, the places we live can affect our mental health? What are the, the sort of direct evidence kinds of inputs here, uh, Robin? Well, let me be specific to... Um, sorry about That's that. Okay. That's that is, okay. I, I do apologize. <laughs> okay. um, It'll stop. <laughs> the issue that I, I think is most obvious is open space and, and the, the connection one has to nature, to places where you feel comfortable. And there's been quite a lot of work done in that area where people's uh, um, memory of and being involved with um, open space, uh, places where they feel comfortable, uh, they feel um, revived is something that has been with us over an, a park planning and and, and, and and improving the natural environment within an urban context for many, many years. So we've learned a lot about that. But when you get to the suburbs, it's, it's a different story because there you're not dealing with a clear cut between the built environment and and and, and park making. You're, you're dealing there with, with a sort of an... Uh, uh, an unplanned environment that spreads and, as you say, sprawls out. Now, how, how does that affect the way people think? Yeah, yeah. Richard, uh, what are some of the ways that specifically we think of when uh, we think of that link between physical space and, and mental health and, and talk some about the differences between how we do that in urban contexts and how we do it in uh, suburban ones? Many of the neighborhoods that have been built in sprawl Burbia, if you will, 
almost lock children into where they live. And, and I'm a pediatrician, so you think about kids growing up in a place where they have to be taken by car to everything, to church, to a ball game, to school, uh, to even meet a friend, that it has to be arranged by, uh, by the parents and child waits. And otherwise, the child comes home and um, comes home in a box, sits in a box, watches a box, uh, and then goes to bed and starts the whole thing over the next day. And I, uh, the Academy of Pediatrics has thought a lot about this issue and have statements. They imagine writing a prescription. They, they tell people, for example, doctors, what to prescribe for certain illnesses, but to prescribe neighborhoods where children have increasing autonomy. Hmm. In my PBS series, we visited Smyrna, Georgia, and we interviewed a half dozen 15-year-old girls asked, you know, what do you do for fun? And the entire summary was, well, we asked our parents to take us to the mall because there was virtually no other thing that they could be doing in the environments that they were in. So a very important thing is to create community if you're going to build suburban places. And, you know, America's twice the size it was when I was born. You're gonna, people will need to live in different places. Um, you need to build them with a view towards how do we create the social glue, the social capital, the connections with each other, very much uh, tied to what Professor Boyle was just saying, that you have to have attachment. Now, I'm going to just jump to one other issue because there's a very interesting study done in Philadelphia where uh, there were a series of uh, vacant lots and, and a foundation put money in to clean up all the vacant lots, but for half of them they then put in uh, benches, uh, better maintenance, uh, places that people could socialize, and found that the mental health of people in that particular area, self-described, do you, are you depressed, do you feel more energy in life, are you glad to see people, was much better in the neighborhoods where they could turn vacant lots into some place that was a coming-together site that created a sense of safety and, frankly, identity and belonging. And, and there's an example that I came across almost serendipitously in Portland, Oregon. Now, I know we always talk about Portland, Oregon, but this is a really cool example. It was actually in suburban Portland, and uh, there was a vacant area that was very poorly kept, and, and a, a local health organization organized with a goat farmer to bring goats in to this particular uh, space. And then they invited... Um, people who had been serviced by the, the, the clinic there to engage with the space, but also with the goats. And you've heard about that animal sort of relationship. But it was also the space that they found um, calming. Um, it, was, it was a place where you, they, they felt safe and, and the goats were something that they could work with and, and look at and, and be connected to. So I think there's quite a complicated relationship that it comes with space um, where, where people like to be, where they feel connected, and, and they want to be, and they want to return to it and go back to it. And I think that's part of a healing process that connects the environment to individuals' health. Hmm. Uh, we're talking about the built environment and the way it affects our sense of mental well-being. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Dina in Ferndale. Dina, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Stephen. Hi. Um, well, my story is I lived on the east side of Detroit as a child and in the 70s when uh, people started to move out of that neighborhood, now called the Old English Village, 
uh, we moved to Bloomfield Hills, which was a complete culture shock. Hmm. And um, I lived in a neighborhood where, you know, the social glue were the neighbors and the accountability of all the mothers knowing the kids. And you really couldn't, you really couldn't hide and uh, get in too much trouble. And when I moved to Bloomfield Hills, I found um, that was all lost. And with so much affluence, it was as if um, it had substituted community for affluence. And all of the kids in the junior high school were doing incredible amounts of drugs. And no one was watching. They, they would go home to these huge homes and, and do drugs and take drugs from their parents. And no one was watching. And none of that was going on in my old neighborhood where there was so much accountability. And we sort of um, went from the front porch to the back deck <laughs> and hid in, in suburbia. And a lot of those kids have since, um, you know, became drug addicts, OD'd. And um, it's just tragic. Lena, I really appreciate uh, the call and those those memories. Uh, as she was talking, Richard and Robin, I, I was thinking about the word sprawl and the way it so kind of perfectly defines what we're doing in places like Southeast Michigan. And what Dean is talking about there is a, a sort of a different iteration, I guess, of that word, that, that there was this tight-knit community that she was a part of on the east side of Detroit. And when she moved to uh, Bloomfield Hills, uh, it, it sprawled out so that it was disconnected, I guess, from from uh, from the people in it were disconnected from each other. Uh, is is it is that too simple uh, a, a descriptor for what we're talking about? Well, I, I'm going to defer to uh, the good doctor um, <laughs> on, 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 on the on, on the details, but from what I've read and, and, and looked at, um, people's memory of, of, of places really forged in their uh, childhood years, you know, between maybe six and 12, uh, that elementary school leading into middle school. Um, and, and, and I think that if, if somebody is, in, as, as was the case with the caller, is moved out and, and, and suddenly is, is, is forged to, to make that important life change, um, moving into um, early adulthood as a teenager, is that is done in an environment that, that, that is, is not necessarily as secure as it was before, then I think that can lead to longer-term issues um, in, in, in their life. What do you think, uh, Doctor? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Robin Boyle's uh, accent is much more pleasing than my own because <laughs> I grew up in Newark and Jersey City where um, these were tough towns, uh, probably a lot like certain parts of Detroit, but if you were out of line, your parents knew before you got home that you know one of the neighbors was watching from the front porch, and people knew what you were up to. And the word sprawl, I love what you just laid out, because uh, the last thing you want your children or teenager to do is sprawl in the living room and do nothing. You want them up, engaged in life, and uh, that physical health, you know, we it's interesting. Americans think of mental health and physical health as being disconnected, as if, you know, the largest, most important organ in the body, if you will, the brain, is somehow not attached to a body. And, you know, we're looking, CDC is very focused on the fact that now two-thirds of Americans are either overweight and obese. You need to do 10,000 steps a day. And if you walk a lot, and what's what we did in urban centers, you had better physical health and you felt better about yourself and you got to know people. You don't get much physical health when you 
drive up a driveway, the automatic door opens, uh, <laughs> one drives in, uh, a worker comes along and does all the outdoor work, and if you go for a walk, you're, uh, everybody wonders if you've got uh, you know, a drive, DUI or uh, <laughs> there was something wrong. And so um, we have really isolated people in profound ways with the way we built suburbia. It doesn't mean you couldn't do it right, though. Uh, again, Dina, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, good morning, to gentlemen. I grew up on the west side of Detroit, and we had uh, a couple of rec centers that were a couple of miles apart, but in the neighborhood. And we just kind of free range roamed between them. If the pools were open, we were there. And the pools were outdoor pools. And this was pre sunscreen for the pediatrician. This was pre sunscreen. <laughs> we lived outside. We. If if it wasn't thunderstorming, we were at the rec center in the pool. And now those very same areas have what I would describe as fortress rec centers. Mm. Coleman Young is one of them, Palmer mm-hmm. Park. Um, you go in and you, you don't have any windows. And I just think, you know, every time I go in, I think, what were they thinking? The children don't get any sunshine. They don't get any nature. These places feel like caves. So that's just one one thought, is yeah. that we were outside, we were in the sun, we were in the pools and in the parks um, from dawn till dusk. Yeah. Um, the other thing I want to say is we had sidewalks, and so many suburban communities in Detroit didn't bother to build sidewalks. They don't have them, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point, Terry. I didn't even thought of that, but you're right. There is not a lot of uh, walkability in those in those communities, and that, that makes it difficult to... So to- uh, to try and you know, it's interesting because the pedestrian is a second-class citizen in America, and you know, no one would if if there was a road problem for the cars going by, the city would be, have to be out there fixing it. But if the sidewalks are either non-existent or ruined, uh, that's the homeowner's problem, and they're not taken care of. Hmm. Sorry, buddy. Hmm. No, I just wanted to make sort of a broader point, which is I, I think something that we can maybe discuss at another time, and that is how people's memory. Um, of where they were born and brought up and how they used the spaces, as the caller said, is, is important when we're looking for recovery or change or, or, or going forward. And there is actually some fairly strong evidence that um, disaster recovery or even remaking community after terrible change, like in the Second World War, was actually assisted by people who had memory, who had memory of, of good times, of good places, of, of that um, you know, wandering between two different swimming pools in 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 the summer is is part and parcel of of what made uh, places come back. I mean, th- there are studies from Germany that, that that the remaking of a country that was completely devastated was um, w- was actually based upon people's coming together after desolation and remembering and and wanting to rebuild what they found positive. The same, perhaps, in areas that have been devastated. In the UK, in in the US, like New Orleans, for example, sure. um, they wanted to, they, they wanted to come back and do it because that's the place that they that they remember. So there is that I think important connection between people's memory, their their place, and and how it changes over time. Okay, Richard Jackson, Professor Emeritus at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit today. 
My pleasure. Also, Robin Boyle, professor of urban planning at Wayne State. Always great to catch up with you as well. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Up next, there is one organization here in Detroit that has been helping teens stay active and healthy for 50 years. Detroit Pal is celebrating that anniversary this weekend. The founder and uh, the new director, interim CEO, are going to join us next. Stay with us on Detroit Today. (laughs) 